Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Obviously, it's been an interesting couple of days, uh, to say the least. I've really been reflecting in, on what our distinctives are as a church. Um, and you know, it's kind of God's incredible providence, isn't it, that I never really obviously planned to deliver this message in particular today and didn't really plan to deliver any kind of message at all up until less than two days ago um, that things happened. Um, and so the obvious choice for me was to continue on where I'd left off in, in, in First John. And as it turns out, we're going to be addressing a couple of these distinctives today. And, and I think two of the most important distinctives of who we are uh, as Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. Um, one of those two, um, spoiler alert, is um, just our unwavering commitment to the truth of God's words to us as recorded in Scripture. And the second of those is the commitment to loving each other and loving God. Um, so as we open our Bibles to First John, I just want to recap, I guess, the last little bit of where we're at. Um, if you look at the last verse of chapter 3, it says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, that is God's commandments, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Um, So the point of that being, as we set up for chapter four, that we can know that God abides in us. How does he abide? By his Spirit. We have a Spirit in us. um, And I guess the job is discovering whose Spirit it is. Um, How do we know that it's the Spirit of God? Is Is it our giftedness? Is it our ability to speak in tongues? Is it our amazing um you know, results in terms of evangelism, evangelism or leadership abilities or success in worldly things. No, um, we know that God abides in us by his spirit, by love. And, um, and we're going to be looking at the nature of that a little bit more in the second half of, um, of the passage we're looking at today. We're going to be going from verses 1 to 12 today. Um, so let's read together. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read the whole thing out and we'll come back and have a look at it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's just pray. Father, we just invite you now to speak to us uh, by your word. Lord, give me a clarity of mind. Give us a willingness to be taught by you, by your spirit. Lord, grow us individually every day, more and more into the person that you wish for us to be. Lord, work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out to the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I think the first thing we need to do here is, is provide a little context. So who are these false prophets? In the context of um, John's mission in Ephesus, we've talked about this probably a number of years ago <laughs> in this series. Um, in this book, um, these people are people who claim to be Christian leaders and Christian teachers. Um, specifically here, John is dealing, though, with the problematic teaching of these so-called Christians who hold a particular heretical doctrine. That's the doctrine called docetism, which is this view that Jesus had no physical body um, and that his suffering was therefore just an illusion. Um, that was kind of closely tied, that was a doctrine really, that doctrine within um, Gnosticism, um, which this idea of Gnosticism was that um, one of the ideas in Gnosticism was this belief that physical matter was bad and the spirit, and the spirit was good, effectively. Um, so Docetism was kind of a natural flow on effect of that. So John's not, not here trying to give the single test of all time of what makes a spirit of God or not of God. So that's not what he's trying to do. If you, got, if you kind of believe that, you'd be very confused because there's obviously lots of things that, you, know, you could say that would make you not of God that, don't, that aren't that. Um, even in the next few verses, you see some things that show us that you are of God or not of God. That's not the test. What he's saying here um, is really just giving a single example that was highly relevant in this particular situation. We can find heaps of other examples like that through church history where, where deviations from Scripture... Um, keep cropping up and, and entering into the church. And I don't want to get too heady here. The important thing um, is that according to John, a partial confession is not a confession at all. Interestingly, um, what this verse does is, is really demonstrates the subject that's most often questioned by the Christian cults. That's the subject of the nature of Christ, the nature of Jesus, who Jesus is. Um, so, how do we apply this today? How is this relevant for us right now as we move forward into this season of, of establishment and change in Calvary Chapel? I would suggest that this is entirely relevant for the church today. Um, and especially as we think about moving forward. When it comes to the spirits, we can, we can find a new spirit every single day online. Um, through podcasts, through famous Bible teachers, through YouTubers, etc., etc. Um, now we don't we, don't, we certainly don't need to just block all these people because they're teaching something that we haven't heard before. Um, but instead, what does it say there? What are we to do with these new spirits? We're to test the spirits. 
What does that mean? That means we hold up their teaching to the light of Scripture. And we say, does it fit? Does it match? Is this what Scripture says? For us, um, and a classic example today is that of liberal Christianity or progressive Christianity. Um, one of the, I think one of the bigger threats to the Christian church in the West. It looks like Christianity on the surface, doesn't it? It looks and it smells like Christianity to an extent, but it's not. It's dressed up to sound intelligent, um, to sound sophisticated, but at the root of progressive Christianity is faithlessness. This belief that we can't trust the Bible, that the Bible is not trustworthy as a document. And we end up with these faulty ideas being smuggled into the church in the guise of Christianity. And they mess up the house from the inside. They don't, you know, they don't even need a back door in. So often the church gives these false teachers the key and lets them run riot inside the church. So who is supposed to, look at the verse, who's supposed to test the spirits? It's not just the leadership. It says beloved, doesn't it? That's everybody. Every believer is to test the spirits. We need wisdom together as believers in Christ of all shapes and sizes. We need wisdom to be able to test the spirits that we hear every single day. We don't want to get all caught up in this heady Christianity though without this faithful application. So, and that's true. But it's also really important to realize that you can't, without right thinking, you can't have right action. Except by accident, maybe sometimes. Right? Without right thinking, you can't have right action. Right thinking precedes right action. Now, the right thinking is not sufficient. You can have some great ideas. So it's not sufficient, but it is necessary. You know, Romans 12 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what, transformed by the renewing of your, your minds, so that you're able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we have to have our, our minds renewed. And that, that is the intellect part. You know, so we, we, we have a heart renewal as well, but we need to be renewing our minds. Verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The spirit of Antichrist, not the Antichrist of Revelation. Um, again, we've talked about this before, but there is an Antichrist future in Revelation. The Antichrist. This is not the Antichrist. It's the same spirit. Um, John talks about this all the way through this book. Um, you know, the Antichrist is mentioned only a few times in the Bible and the vast majority of them are here. More here than in Revelation. Okay? Um, and it's talking about Antichrists, plural. These, these, the, anti, the definition of an Antichrist, not the Antichrist, the definition of an Antichrist is really anything that claims to represent Jesus Christ but is false. Okay? Um, it's teaching something that's contrary to the nature of Jesus. And, um, and what does it say here? It says, you heard that it was coming. So we know that when the church started, there were no antichrists. 
Right? But now it's here. So it's already there in, in the time that John is writing to these Christians, probably in Ephesus, in Western Turkey. He's writing to these guys and there's, there's already, the spirit of Antichrist is already manifested in these Antichrists, these false teachers. Um, and the implication is, through all of John's work, is that the Antichrist will continue to come. So we, continue, we need to continue to be aware that this is a reality, that we are dealing with Antichrists. Now, Antichrist sounds kind of a little bit heavy, kind of like one of those... Um, you know, hellfire and brimstone type preachers, you know, doesn't it? Um, you kind of, it's a little bit embarrassing if you were to say antichrists out in public, but, but it's biblical. The, they're antichrists not in the sense that you hear a Manic Street preacher preach antichrist. These are antichrists because they are anti-Christ, anti-Messiahs. Should we feel threatened about these antichrists? No, I don't think so. There's nothing new. These problems have been present, as we said, since the beginning of the church, since John's time even. Instead, we need to be wise. We need to know that God will grow his church regardless of false teachers. And sometimes he uses false teachers even, believe it or not. That's his prerogative. We need to be wise in how we respond. Um, we need to not, obviously, give in to false teaching. We need to, we need to oppose it. But we don't need to worry. God's got it covered. Verse 4, little children. I love John. This is one of these Johnisms. Little children. He says this all the time. Little children. He just loves these guys. He's over 90 now, living on the Isle of Patmos. Um, and he just loves these guys. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Um, and, you know, Sunday school question. Who is he that is in you? Jesus, right? Who is he that is in the world? That is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's Satan. Okay, so notice here it's past tense. See that? It doesn't, say, it doesn't say you will overcome. It doesn't say you might overcome. It doesn't say even that you are presently overcoming. It says that you have overcome. It is a done deal. Complete. Finished. So before we even see the Antichrist, before we even hear the Antichrist, we've already overcome them. From the perspective of eternity, although it may feel new, we're already on the winning side. It's like we're playing a game of soccer and halfway through, you know, we realize that actually the ref is on our side, in a sense. Or maybe FIFA's on our side because they're the ones making the rules. You know, we, we can't lose. The game's rigged um, in a good way. Um, we literally can't lose. Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Again, we see here that the influence of that heresy, docetism um, and Gnosticism creeping into the church. Now, I dare say there aren't many docetists here today or really anywhere in the world. I haven't heard of any modern docetists, any people who, who you know, reject um, the physical nature of Christ. Um, the reality of the situation is, is that the big part of the reason that Gnosticism and, and Docetism were gaining support within the church was that they were already a popular belief, a popular philosophy in that day, in that time, in that place. Um, and then there are lots of reasons why the church might be tempted to adopt that approach, you know, of, of accepting these beliefs and trying to kind of fit them in to Christianity. You know, maybe it's a fear of ridicule for saying something that's, that seems outlandish, like your God actually died. I mean, that was a big part of it. How can you have a God that dies? Well, 
Actually, it's not quite how it works. Jesus died, the man. And there's this beautiful thing um, where Jesus has two natures. And, and they, they had trouble explaining these things. Um, and so they were confused. They didn't know, they didn't know the theology. Um, but also, maybe there were other reasons. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was uncertainty. Maybe, um, they, were, maybe they were trying to have you know, an apologetic influence on people. Say, well, you know, it's kind of the same. You know, this could work. Um, the unfortunate result, however you slice it, is that, is that the basic doctrines of Christianity are, are undermined when you undermine the nature of Jesus. In this instance, the physical death and the resurrection of Christ, um, this is the reality of our need for a saviour, not just, not just um, of our physical body, but of our entire selves. And every other false teaching will have its own consequences. So the church was falling victim to applying a prevailing philosophy to the detriment of the truth of Scripture. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It happens all the time. It continues to happen. You know, we can face the same danger today. Many, like me, love apologetics. Um, you know, providing offense, a defense of the faith, we might be tempted in our apologetics to accept certain positions that undermine what seem like a really small doctrine, but the results can be catastrophic. Um, let's find the other way, the one that demonstrates love and intelligence, but without compromising on, on scriptural truth. Let's provide a clear defense of our faith because we can. We can do it with boldness. We can trust completely the teaching of scriptures and not undermine the faith that we adhere to. I guess as a more general application here, we see that, that the echo chamber that we see so often today is not a result of the internet, right? The echo chamber was happening there in these verses in John's time. Now, certainly the online world really provides, I guess, some unique manifestations of this reality, but again, it's not new. The world listens to what it wants to hear. That's what the world does. If you want to ignore your God-given conscience and indulge in this lifestyle or that lifestyle, not only does the world tell you that it's okay, but you can almost always find someone who claims to represent Jesus who will agree with you as well. That's sad, but it's the truth. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who are they who listen to us? Well, first to us, John is saying that it's he and the people that he's writing to who are from God. So what is on display here is not, not simply that they'll listen to everything said by these believers. It's not saying, you know, you have to listen to every single thing. You don't have to listen to my preferences on Vegemite over jam or, you know, all this other kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that they listen to us in every way, shape and form. What they're saying in, is in as much as, as we are preaching what's, what, the, what God says to us, sharing the truth that's been handed down to them, in as much as we are preaching that and they listen to it, then they're from God. Okay? So it's on the basis of their exception or rejection of that message that they're either being labeled as those who know God or those who are not of God. Now for us, in John's time, they didn't have the canon of Scripture. It wasn't complete. It wasn't done. It was still being written. Here, I mean, it's, this is part of it being written. This is one of the last books, but it was, a lot of it was there already, but it hadn't been distributed yet. Um, they hadn't canonized, they hadn't recognized all of what was scripture just yet, although it was, it was getting pretty clear. Um, so what was the message? 
Well, it was the message of the apostles. It was the, it was the message of the gospel, number one, the core message of, of faith in Jesus Christ, but it was the teaching of the apostles at that stage that was the authority. And as the apostles died out and as they, as they kind of, you even see with John, he refers to himself as an apostle early on in his ministry and later on he refers to himself as an elder. So he kind of moves himself out of that apostle role because what's taking authority now as, as the canon is being completed, what's taking authority is Scripture itself. Scripture becomes the new authority. So I guess a paraphrase for us might be, whoever heeds God as he has revealed himself through Scripture, those people know God. Those people who don't do this, yet still claim to represent God, because that's what it's talking about, they are not from God at all. We need to be astute in testing those who would teach us. And that measure is the Word of God. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we've seen this wonderful establishment of truth. But John immediately moves on to the second point. Almost as if he preempts this danger that can come with trying to be discerning. Being discerning is good, but there's a danger there you can forget to love. I've seen it. I think you've probably all seen it. People are discerning and they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're being, they think they're being good. They think they're being um, righteous, but they forget to love people in the discerning process. And I don't think it's any mistake that John ties these two things together so closely. We've seen this wonderful statement of truth. But John says, you know, don't get so hung up on your, on your notions of good doctrine that you forget to love the people who God has put in front of you. As Paul tells Timothy, it's life and doctrine, or in this case, doctrine and life. Doctrine and love. They go hand in hand. Right thinking and right doing. I think it's a great reminder for us right now as we aim to reestablish what it is that we're all about. Right thinking, right doing. We're living under God's word and we're loving each other. I want to outline something that's always been true for Calvary Chapel, but sometimes it needs to be restated. We all have beliefs, right? Every fellowship has its distinctives um, in this way. It's not wrong to have particular views on, on, so, on this different sorts of issues. You know? In fact, it's necessary in many areas just to be functioning practically. Um, so where do you draw the lines? Where do you draw the lines in doctrine? How does that work for a local fellowship? Um, it's something that could be really tricky for local fellowships to figure that out. At Calvary, at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, those who lead and teach will always teach within a certain set of beliefs. Um, sometimes that includes more than one possible view. For example, on eschatology. or I mean, there's lots of different views on the free will predestination debate. I mean, we're happy to talk about different views that, that fall within orthodoxy on some issues. And some issues, we have our distinctives. Um, there's some that we hold as particular to us as Calvary Chapel. For example, I guess one example of that would be the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. That's something that every teacher in Calvary Chapel will hold to, is the inerrancy of Scripture, and will, will forever. It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. Um, you don't have to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture to be a Christian. Uh, you just So there's another element there at play as well, isn't there? There's these sets of beliefs that um, we would also require people to agree to if they want to volunteer at Calvary Chapel. And that's not the same set of beliefs that you need to, to be able to teach. 
right? Because we recognize that there are different, people have different minds, different thoughts, different consciences. And these beliefs tend to be less restrictive. They really just include all of what Orthodox Christianity is. But neither of these facts preclude our fellowship with those who disagree with us or are still working some things out. Okay, we can have fellowship and disagree. While we will hold, to, to, we will hold self-confessing believers to a certain standard of behavior, which is what Scripture commands us to do, it's pretty clear. Um, not a lot of churches do it, but the, the, the Bible does make it clear that we're to hold each other to a certain standard of behavior if you confess to be a believer. We will do that. We'll continue to do that. We've always done that. We don't expect perfection from anyone. Not from elders, not from ministry leaders, certainly not from new believers or anyone in between. I don't want to be held to a standard of perfection. I don't know about you. We require absolutely nothing from the unbeliever who's checking us out. Okay? Nothing. Nothing at all. They are welcome to attend as an unbeliever for 20 years and we will just keep sharing the gospel with them but we don't expect any kind of conformity. And from the confessing believer, all we require is a commitment to obedience to God. Right? With zero expectation of success in its application. Right? We don't expect people are going to get it right. We are a bunch of imperfect people. We're trying to be faithful to a perfect God. We need to continue to bear with one another in love. That's part of what it means to love each other. To have grace with each other. We are a community of grace. We've been shown grace, we offer grace. Remember, that's a sign of someone who's been born of God and therefore knows God. What else does it look like in our fellowship to love one another? And this is an area where I think the first century application is probably not a lot different from our application today, to be honest. Yeah? As people, guess what? We hurt each other. We mess up. We make mistakes. Just this week, uh, I had some feedback from a a dear friend um, who said that about six months ago, I did something to him that hurt him. Um, And he felt really hurt by that. Um, I had, truth is, I had no idea I'd even hurt him at all. Um, I obviously (laughs) apologised. I was sad about it, honestly. Um, he was kind enough to tell me about it, which I appreciated. And, and by God's grace, I was able to receive it in a spirit of love. Um, but he'd already forgiven me before I'd apologized. Just needed to let me know um, so that we could move, move on together in, in a close relationship. He was demonstrating love to me. Love is patient. Tell me, when was the last time that patience felt good? Never happened for me. Might have felt good afterwards. I thought, yes, I nailed it. I'm not naturally a patient person. It's one of my growth areas. Um, Kendall's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I get antsy if I'm running late, if um, someone's being ridiculous in the road in front of me, you know, all those things. God's working on me in that. Love is patient. We need to be patient with each other. Love is kind. 
This is one of those areas where we can demonstrate to the world that we have something special to share, right? Kindness reaches people. I don't think we should ever under, underestimate the, the power of a kind word or kind action. Um, love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. You, you see where I'm going with this, right? You see where I'm getting this from. What are the alternatives to these things? Love rejoices for others' good. It sees something good happen for someone and instead of being, being envious about it, it says, yes, Yes, that's awesome. Praise God for that. It encourages and builds up. It doesn't tear people down. Love's humble. It says, you know what? I mess up. And humility is really having a right view of yourself before God, right? Love speaks with tenderness. Love seeks the best for other people. It's slow to anger doesn't hold grudges. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love protects, it trusts, it hopes. Love perseveres. You know, I look around this little group of us, and that's what I see people doing. Honestly, I see you guys doing it. I see you forgiving each other. I see you bearing with one another in love. I see you being patient with each other. Um... Do we do it perfectly? No. But we are doing it. And what I want to say to you guys, to, to at this little group of us, is keep going. Keep pressing on. What you do isn't in vain. There are both immediate consequences when you love someone and eternal rewards. Both. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Manifest is one of those Bible-ese words. It just means made apparent. So the love of God was made apparent to us. I've never used the word manifest in my life other than when reading the Bible. Um, made apparent to us. We don't have to try and imagine what love looks like, do we? We have a model. God the Father demonstrates his love for us by sending his one and only son so that we might love, so that we could have a new life in Christ, which then allows us to love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love this, right? It's kind of an acknowledgement, isn't it, that we really are terrible at loving. Because it's not like, you know, it's not saying this is love that, you know, that you did this and this and this. It's, this is love, not that we loved ourselves, but, you know, that God loved us, right? This is this real acknowledgement that we can't really even use our own love as an example, right? The example we have to keep on coming back to is the example of God loving us. That shouldn't stop us recognising, I think, knowing that we're terrible at loving, it shouldn't stop us from recognising um, that we have a duty to love. But it's more than just a duty. Jesus didn't come to be a king or a conqueror in that, in that coming. He, come to, he came to serve, right? As John prayed, you know, to make himself nothing, taking the very nature of a, a human servant. Um, who, you know, God, who, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Um, 
And that's the example that we have, is to make ourselves nothing. He died for us, and that death that he had for us became the propitiation for us. That, that's a big word. It just, it's like a Latin translation of a Greek word. The Greek word is hilasterion, and that just basically had this meaning within pagan religions that just meant um, that it just kind of made you right with a god, a deity, right? Um, so to, to appease God, usually through sacrifice, that's what that, that's what that word propitiation means. Um, it's basically the means by which we are made right with God, okay? Um, now we know through other scriptures that that's by the atonement for our sins with Christ as our substitute, yeah? Um, so we are, we are made right with God through his son being the propitiation or the, he, he does what's necessary for us. And verse 11, if, if beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Despite that uncertainty of, or, of our failure, um, but despite, you know, not getting it right. We're still commanded to give it our best shot. And here is our motivation because he first loved us. Christianity is a response ethic. It's not something we whip ourselves into. In my line of work as a GP, I see um, a lot of children brought into my, into my office through the department, DCJ or DOCS, or it's hard to keep up with the names, but they keep changing, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, people, foster kids, um, kids who are between families, um, kids who are struggling to stay with their mum, um, often kids in group homes if their behaviour is so bad that they're just too challenging to be with a foster carer, which happens more than you would like to think. Um, and I get to see firsthand the difference between children who are loved and children who received zero love. I mean, can you imagine for a second being the 15-year-old girl who comes into my office who has no parents that she knows, who has had a number of challenging foster placements, um, and the only person that cares for you is the person who's paid to live in the house with you. There's nobody. I mean, is it any wonder that that person has difficulty loving? No. And I know we all had a different experience, didn't we, of being loved growing up. And so for some of us, it was great. I personally, I'm so grateful. So for some of us, it was more challenging. For some of us, our parents either weren't there, or if they're there, they were kind of absent. Or if they were there, maybe you would rather they weren't for some people. But we've been shown how to love by a loving father. Our parents have been replaced in a sense. We've been shown how to love. We really have no excuse anymore. Other than the fact that we're sinners. <laughs> um, we are called to love each other with the love that God has demonstrated to us through sending his son. Not on our own steam, but as a response. What's going to make the difference here? It's going to be the constant recognition of the love that God has for us. Not just the reality of the, the fact that there is love, but the nature of that love. And verse 12, our last verse for today. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I guess we've got this idea of no one ever seeing God and that's a little bit confusing because you've got things like Moses saw God, was with God face, with, was with God face to face, but... Um, um, but then later on in Exodus, he's told that if he saw God, he would die. So it turns out face-to-face -face is just Hebrew idiom for being in close proximity, being in close relationship with someone. 
And then you've got Jacob wrestling God, but that turns out to be God you know, presenting himself as a man. Or you've got Samson's parents who, who see God, but that turns out to be God presenting himself as an angel. So no one can see God. It's, it's legit. No one has seen God. Um, truly. But what it's saying here is that despite the fact, because that, where it says, if we love one another, you could actually put but if we love one another there, the little eon, the Greek um, preposition can be used as a, as a, as a kind of a, a, distinct, a distinctive kind of change. So it could, could be saying, no one's seen God, but this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. In other words, no one's seen God, but, but we can see an aspect of God by loving each other, right? So clearly. It's worked out in us by us loving one another. God's, God's, God's love is made perfect in us as we, as we act that out. And as much as we love others, that's God's love being evident in us. Do you want the world to see God? I do. Love the church. This is about love for brothers, by the way. You know, this is how people know you are my disciples. I keep saying this verse, by the love you have for one another. And I say that because I have a natural bent towards evangelism. I have a really, this doesn't teach evangelism, right? <laughs> so, but it does, you know, that is a reality for us, is that, that this is how people will know you my disciples, by the love you bear for the world, but no, by the love you bear for one another. This is evangelistic. We love each other and the world sees it. And the world goes, I want some of that. So as we wrap up, I guess we see these, these, these two elements quite clearly. This, this element, um, as I said, I don't think it's any surprise that we see them together. We have right doctrine on one hand, um, which is abs- absolutely essential to living a life that's both effective and pleasing to God. And on the other hand, we have love, without which all the right thinking in the world is useless. We need to nail these priorities, guys. Not just this week, but over and over again. We'll fail, but that won't define us. What will define us is our willingness to hear from God, to believe what he's told us, to meditate on his love for us, and in response to that love, to keep loving on one another. Imperfectly, but persistently. Let's do it, hey? Let's pray, guys. Father, we just, we love you. Not as much as you love us, but um, we're grateful that you do love us, Lord, that you sent your son to die in our place. Uh, And as we continue to grow together, as you continue to call us out to the world to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus um, dying in our place, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that as a body of people who love, who are marked by love. But also help us to be clear in our thinking, to not compromise on truth, to be committed wholly and solely to what it is that you want to be telling us through your scriptures. Lord, reveal yourself to us day by day. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.